0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network, of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFaul from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm excited to welcome Timothy Snyder to the podcast. Tim is the Hausen Professor of History at Yale University, and longtime listeners to the New Books Network may remember his discussion of The Red Prince, The Secret Lives of an Austrian Archduke, on the network a few years back. Since then, he's written a widely discussed history of the violent 20th century in Eastern Europe titled Bloodlands, and now a new book, Black Earth, the Holocaust as History and Warning, which is the subject of our interview today. The book is a provocative and insightful reinterpretation of the roots and mechanisms of the Holocaust. It takes seriously Hitler's understanding of nature, science, and politics. It argues that the enabling mechanism for the Holocaust was not the power of states, but rather their destruction, and it suggests that the lessons of the Holocaust are directly relevant for us today in the dangerous world of climate change, globalization, and narratives of crisis. It's a rich book, one which anyone interested in the Holocaust or genocide studies should read. I'm thrilled to have Tim here to touch on some of the basic ideas and conclusions of the book. And so with that, Tim, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us in New Books and Genocide Studies. Glad to be here, Kelly. Thanks. As As, as a start, maybe... Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a historian.
1: Goodness, I think for want for, for of, of of other talents, um, I <laughs> this I, I thought I was going to do other things. I mean, I thought I was going to study politics, um philosophy and economics, um and ended up majoring in history when when I went off to do my doctorate in history in in the UK. I thought I was preparing myself for a professional career in in diplomacy. Along the way, it was made clear to me that um, perhaps I was uh, (laughs) better able at framing things historically than I was at um, presenting things (laughs) diplomatically, which I think was (laughs) and and remains the case. Uh, And along the way, I realized that I loved it. So I I wasn't—I mean, often now when I'm talking to to applicants for PhD programs, I I try to be—you know, like, like the rabbi who makes people come back three times. I try to make sure that they really want to do it because it's kind of a crazy way to spend your twenties, right? Doing a PhD and, and the prospects aren't so certain. I I had kind of the opposite experience. I never, I was never convinced that I wanted to do it, but once I started doing it, um, then I realized that I loved it. And then I've been, I've been fortunate enough to make a career, but a lot had to do with the fact that I got transplanted to Europe because that meant that, you know, almost incidentally, I, I made friends and learned languages. Um, and became familiar with the places and, and stored up some of the, the intellectual resources, which I'm really still living on today.
0: Yeah. You know, many people who, how did you end up becoming interested in the language and cultures of Eastern Europe as opposed to Western Europe?
1: uh it, it the, yeah, I think I had like a kind of generational luck in that the intersection mm. between the two seems natural. I, um, I, I was studying at Brown in the late 1980s and was fortunate enough there to have um, terrific teachers in both Eastern and West European history. Uh, and for example, Mary Gluck, who taught the intellectual, teaches the intellectual history survey there, a marvelous three-part class, was someone who had no difficulty um, as as a as, Hungarian uh, herself in bringing together themes of, East, of, of European history mm-hmm. without regard to the post-war division between East and West. And I also was trained in Eastern European history as an undergraduate, which is pretty, which is pretty un, un, unlikely. And then mm-hmm. but the generational part <clears throat> has to do with nineteen eighty nine. Um, I, I was studying um, as uh, as, solid, as the second Solidarity brought democracy to Poland. I was studying as the Berlin Wall came down. Um, mm-hmm. I was I was in Moscow uh, in late nineteen ninety um, at the at the height, or rather, you know, perhaps the death, the your point of view of, of the Gorbachev period. So I I, I was able um to see things happening as they happened and to see this as an opportunity and then you know as I mentioned before I was able to study in the UK at, at Oxford which a place which at the time essentially had you know no no program um just a lot of a lot of you know a lot of books and and a lot of good intentions and a lot of wonderful huh. instructors so I could then go to eastern europe and learn the languages it was also the time that sorosh I think what was a historically wise move was bringing lots of East Europeans to Oxford with these nice mm-hmm. one-year fellowships. And that meant also that I could make friends as 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 I was studying. So I mean, there was this, so let I me mean, put it more succinctly. I had this, I was interested in power and I was interested in ideas. And in Eastern Europe in 1989 thereafter, there seemed to be a moment where power and ideas were in a new sort of encounter. And I think I was right about that, although slightly naive about it. I think in in the end I was right. Um, Eastern Europe was a place where both the study of politics and the study of ideas uh, would be fruitful for for years and decades to come. And, you know, the the one way to describe all the books that I've written is in one way their history is of the politics of ideas.
0: I I was actually going to ask you that um, because I I thought about how to introduce you and I, I thought about, introducing you as an Eastern Eastern European historian or a historian of ideas, or uh, perhaps a history of politics. Um, And yet you're writing a book on the Holocaust, and and of course you've written Bloodlands. Um, And and we now have programs that train Holocaust historians, or or, or even in a couple cases, genocide studies historians or genocide studies scholars. What is your particular background how does that help you, or perhaps hinder you? But I suspect help you in studying this kind of violence that that may be a, a Holocaust-specific training. How, how is that
1: different? Well, let me let me answer it a slightly different way in terms of what yeah. I think Holocaust history training would would have to be because this is something that mm-hmm. I've thought about um, a, a fair a fair bit. We always in history face the problem that those who write history are coming from a different place than those who experience it. And the act of writing history is um, um, the, the method of, of finding ways to overcome those differences and then to convey the, the fruits of our labors to an audience in such a way that is uh, both intelligible to those readers and true to the experiences of those who are describing. It's not an easy thing to do. In the Holocaust, um, the, the particular, one of the particular issues is that those who experienced it were largely people who lived in Yiddish and, and Russian and, and Polish, um, Hungarian. Uh, and those who write about it are li- are largely people who live in English and German and, and Hebrew. And that's a very elemental issue, which we have to do some work to overcome. Um, whether we're talking about the United States or Israel, there is a basic problem with language. Um, um many, pe- few people you know would describe themselves as Holocaust historians who don't know German, although there are some, but, there's a basic issue that um, mo- the German Jews were not actually that central to the history of the Holocaust. Um, they're the ones who are civilizationally the most familiar to us, and that skews our perspective, I think, rather than rather than helping it, because we, we identify with people whose experiences of the Holocaust were actually quite exceptional in, in many respects. Um, and if you don't get beyond German, then you're looking at the Holocaust either from the point of view of, as I say, exceptional survivors, that is German Jews. I mean, exceptional survivors in many ways, it's exceptional that so many of them survived, but also, um, they were a, very, they were a trivial, trivially small percentage of the people affected by the Holocaust. The percentage of Jews in Germany was um, well under one half of one percent um, when the Holocaust starts. The Holocaust is mass killing. And the vast majority of people are going to be killed in the Holocaust. Ninety-seven um, are, percent are beyond, have nothing to do with Germany, in fact, until the Holocaust ar- arrives. So the danger is that you look at it from the perspective of exceptional survivors or from the perspective of perpetrators, which is a very important perspective, of course, but it's also a partial perspective and an essentially colonial one. And I just don't think no matter how smart you are, no matter how critical you are, if you only see a place like Belarus or Ukraine from the front through the eyes of the SS um, or on the pages of documents written by, you know, secretaries, um, in German, writing for the SS or the Wehrmacht or the Polizei or whatever it might be, um, I just do not think you can see some of the essential realities. And it's not just a matter of like giving voice to the victims. That's important, and I try to do it. It's a matter of interpretation, because part of history is always that the people who are carrying things out don't know all about what they're doing, because they can't see everything. And the advantage one has as a historian is that we have the time and the tools to actually put together Multiple perspectives from multiple sources that people wouldn 't have had at the time to actually try to to try to understand, so i mean that 's the long way of saying that holocaust studies has to be um, it has to be multilingual it has to involve German you know some mixture of german yiddish polish Russian, and of course other languages like Hungarian you know or Bulgarian or certainly Romanian um, would be would be very important as well, but it has to involve some mix and and that 's that's where my perspective is different. I'm not going to say better, but what, the, the way that I came to it was, was that I started as an East European historian. The, the first you know, major intellectual effort was that of a Slavicist, you know, to learn to read Polish-Ukrainian, Czech, Russian, Slovak, Bielorussian. Um, that was the first push, um, and I already knew French and German. So that was the first push into the language, and in writing, you know, the, the, my dissertation was about um, a, a Polish sociologist who wrote about the national question. My my second book, *The Reconstruction of Nations*, was about um, the transformation of the national idea in Eastern Europe. And in writing these books, <clears throat> both of which you know, both of which touched upon but did not directly address Jewish history, I, I realized that um, one of the problems with the East European field. Was that it was national? So it's national even if it is multinational, right? So mm-hmm. you learn Polish national history, you learn to be critical within it. Okay, fine. You learn Ukrainian national history, you learn to be Ukraine, you learn to be critical within it. That's that's great. You learn to compare those two national perspectives. But an event like the Holocaust cannot actually be captured within those national perspectives. Yeah. Not just because you know they're all partial or they're all defensive, but for, for, for deeper intellectual reasons that. It, couldn't, it didn't happen you know, within a nation. It happened over all of Europe and in different ways across Europe. And so the second, as it were, intellectual or linguistic push, you know in my life was was to, get, was to get into the Yiddish, which isn't actually that hard. And you know, a little asterisk here. One of the weirdest things about the Holocaust field is that not every German historian knows Yiddish. None of them do, in effect. I mean they're okay. That's an, that, that there are a few who do. but basically, as a first approximation, none of them do and and that's extraordinary because a german a german a native german speaker can learn yiddish you know in his sleep um you know in an afternoon it's really easy you just have to learn a couple thousand words and and an alphabet that you know anyone can do that and the fact that they don't is very odd and i mean it's not just a problem it's i think it actually it's it's a signal of the problem of the, this colonial problem of not wanting to read of not wanting to learn languages beyond your own and to look at through it look through things from a familiar lens but anyway we're where I'm going with this is that what I came to see is that it wasn't enough to be critical within national perspectives or even to um, look at them all and try to transcend them, which is what I was after in Reconstruction, but instead to seek after other perspectives. And some of my books were therefore microhistorical, like the biography, The Red Prince. But, um, the, but the other way to try to go about this was to get to this pan-human or this pan-human is good perspective or territorial perspective where all the voices count equally. And so, therefore, I need the Yiddish, you know, therefore, I have to be looking at this, not as some collection of national historians, histories. Therefore, you have to say, even the German perspective, even though it might be the most important, or even the Jewish perspective, even though you might say that's the most important, that's not enough for interpretation. And, you know, to get, to get after interpretation, you have, to have all, you have to have a number of these languages equally and you have to get away from um, national accounts of perpetration or national accounts of victimhood. Those might be; th- those are important for political reasons and for psychological reasons. And I and I'm I, I'm convinced for moral reasons. But to get to interpretation, um, you have you have to go you have to go further than that. So, for for there to be Holocaust studies, um, one has to actually do the history in this very conventional, multi-perspectival way. The main problem, I think, with Holocaust studies right now, the fundamental problem with Holocaust studies is that we assume that we know what happened, which is utterly false. And we assume we know why it happened, which is also utterly false. And then we jump to memory and memory you can do with just one language. Memory you can do based upon your own intuitions and experiences. But for me, the basic question is memory of what? And we don't have the of what we don't have the what yet. Okay, long answer to short question,
0: (laughs) Well, well, in your account of this, um, you start out by talking about ideas, in particular Hitler's ideas. So so maybe we... Can you say something about how, how Hitler understood the world around him?
1: So this is... Ex- I mean, in a way this bears on your last question. It yeah. all hangs together because mm-hmm. one of the first moves we make when we consider the Holocaust is to separate ourselves from Hitler. And there, there are various ways of doing that. One is... The most conventional one is to say madman, right? I was just, mm-hmm. um, people who write about the book, I notice they have all this tick where like they, they, they realize that I'm trying to get them to take Hitler seriously, but they still can't help but refer to Hitler as a madman. And that's a kind of, that, that's, you know, that's an obvious, you know, Freudian displacement. Like he was not one of us, he's something else. And people do this in various ways. They say that Mein Kampf is incomprehensible or rambling. Which it's not, frankly. I mean, it's not as incomprehensible or as rambling as many other things, let's put it this way, that we are forced to read in our line of work, right? Um, so we, we have these various ways of distancing from Hitler. And What I'm trying to do is to, is, is to say, hold on, since the Holocaust actually happened as a historical event, since it's not just a collection of memories, it's not just a commemorative performance that we are asked to carry out as Germans or as other people since it actually happened, we have to assume, we have to take as our starting assumption, that these ideas had some coherence and some power, which unfortunately they did. But you can't make that argument. When you make that argument, you're paying the price of saying, as one has to, I think, that Hitler was in fact not insane, and that he was human, and that his ideas actually reached other humans. So what are these ideas, and why, why are they appealing? I think the basic way to talk about it is as a as a globalization crisis, as a response to globalization, um, when we are forced, as we are today in the early 21st century, as Hitler's generation was in the early 20th, 20th century, to contemplate the whole world, there is always a danger of some kind of conceptual slippage into very simple ideas, just for the for the brute reason that it's harder to understand the whole planet than it is to understand a family or a village or you know or a country, right? When you leap to the whole planet. And when unexpected things happen on a planetary scale, like for example, World War I, or a British blockade, or a Great Depression, um, or the rise of communism um, in Hitler's time, or in our time, right, um, a financial crisis, or the rise of terrorism, or global warming, when these planetary scale things happen, there's a tendency, I think, to slip towards some unifying, elegant theory which explains it all, right? And this is not me saying this. This is Hannah Arendt saying this. This is Hannah Arendt's argument about totalitarianism, that conspiracy theories are a shortcut to making sense of the world. Hitler's view is that the world really is a kind of natural struggle. Um, that is the single truth. There is no really any other truth. It's a natural struggle. We really are like, uh, we really are divided into races. Races really are divided into species, like, like species. What species really do is to struggle for land and food and to kill their competitors. And there's nothing else on the planet. That's, that's it. And the only reason we don't see the world that way, says Hitler, and this is all very clearly spelled out, um, in the two books. The only reason we don't see things that way is that the Jews who somehow are, are coming from somewhere else, who are not fully human, there's something supernatural about the Jews in Hitler's account. We, tend to, we, we say often that Hitler thought the Jews were untermentioned, or were subhumans. That's, that's wrong. Hitler did not think the Jews were untermentioned. Hitler thought that the Jews were parahuman, that they were a counter race or a kind of anti-race. They were the ones who broke the rules of the world. Um, and how do they do that? They did that by introducing ideas ideas like Christianity, or like socialism, or like the rule of law, any idea which allows um, uh, two, two human beings to see each other as human beings as opposed to members of the same race or a different race, any idea which works against racial solidarity, says Hitler, is artificial, supernatural, um, non-human, Jewish. And so once once you have that in play, then you have a kind of program, because you can say, well, we have a nature, we have a destiny, our destiny is to, to reproduce, to cover as much territory as we can, and that's real. There's nothing else. There's no, you know, there's no divine, there's no metaphysic. that's all there is, and any, anyone who's trying to persuade you that there is something else is, is a Jew. And here, then, you begin to see how those ideas could be appealing. Okay, so, oh, right, so it's easy to say, well, I'm not an anti-Semite, or you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and fine, you know, many of us are not, but What's the positive appeal? The positive appeal is that Hitler is appealing, Hitler is, 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 is trying to communicate to emotions. He, he, when, he's, when he's saying all this, he's simultaneously saying, Look, you know that you're afraid, right? You're afraid for your children. You're afraid for your grandchildren. You're afraid of all of these um, inexplicable global level forces. And what I'm telling you, this is Hitler, is that you're right to be afraid. And you should allow that fear to motivate. Some conquest of land, Lebensraum, which is the only thing which will make life fully secure. That's one emotion, right? An emotion which is familiar to us, the emotion of fear. Another emotion which is also familiar to us is is the emotion of envy or greed or rapaciousness. Because Hitler also says, and this is especially in the second book, he says, "Look, you want ever more." You want ever more for your family. You want an ever higher standard of living. You Germans want to live as well as the Americans, and the American standard of living is going to go up and up and up and up. And because standard of living or lifestyle or sense of comfort is always subjective and always relative, I'm paraphrasing, but not much, um, it's normal and natural for you to want ever more and for that to be infinite, for that to go on indefinitely. And so it's, it's right then for you for us, for the Germans, to kill tens of millions of people in Eastern Europe, and part of that is he's appealing to fear and saying, we need this to survive, and part of it is he's appealing to basically the human desire to consume, right? Um, We need this so we can have an ever-higher standard of living, and what the Lebensraum idea does is that it blurs life with lifestyle. It blurs survivalist emotion with the pursuit of, you know, what they basically called the American dream. And, and here, you know, we're at a kind of politics which is actually not so different. Um, I mean, it's exaggerated, the emphases are different, but it's not so different from some of the things that we hear around us every day, which I don't say just to slam, you know, the Americans or the Chinese or whoever it might be, but rather to try to make this kind of politics seem real. And then, of course, the final, the, the final two steps in the argument, which are even more chillingly familiar, are that um, since this is all right, the existence of states, um, of, of of political structures, is highly contingent. The only real thing are race wars. If you believe that the state has some kind of integrity on its own, you fall in prey to a Jewish plot. Um, and so naturally, the states are going to be swept away in the racial struggle. And the other element, which, which we forget totally, um, it has to do with science. Hitler says that science, science like the state, science like any other universal idea, cannot save us. If you believe that science is going to make a difference, then you fall in prey to a Jewish plot. What one has to do is take land and that, and not count on science. Now, in his own time, the science in question was agricultural science, things that we take for granted, the things which give which have brought us a bounty in the last eighty or ninety years, namely um, hybridization, um, fertilizers, pesticides, techniques of irrigation. Hitler specifically denies that all those things work um, in Mein Kampf in the second book. Those are passages which no one ever cites, but they're very important because what Hitler is saying is not only, you know, there's no universalism, that's familiar, but he's also saying there's no future except struggle. And this is relevant to us again today because we're also a bit at a moment, or, or the politics of this is relevant, we're also being asked to choose. Are we going to invest heavily in science um, to try to overcome the latest problems that we have, or do we prefer, at some deep level, this is the frightening part, do we actually prefer for those problems to to get greater and greater so that our ideas about competition and our ideas about struggle can realize themselves? Okay, I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> so so given these, this kind of set of ideas which, which he has about the world, how does... What is his practical program in terms of trying to secure a future which, if not forever stable and secure for for Germans, at least was secure in the short term?
1: Yeah, I mean, Hitler's right. That's very well framed because from Hitler's point of view, nothing is ever stable and secure eternally. Life is just struggle. Um, From his perspective, the Germans should already have conquered Eastern Europe that was totally normal, um, or should have been totally normal. Germany should have won the First World War. Um, and as, as, we, as we remember, the First World War in, in Europe actually had an Eastern Front as well, right? Mm-hmm. And from the German point of view, part of one of the war aims was to secure a set of satellite states in, in Eastern Europe, the most important of which was Ukraine, which was supposed to feed Germany. There was the, the, the peace of brest litovsk was known, as German, known in Germany in 1918 as, as the bread piece. The idea was that Ukraine was going to feed Germany forever. From Hitler's point of view, by way of that war, or in some other way, Germans should already have been, by his time, um, the masters of Eastern Europe, the masters, most importantly, of the cornucopia, the breadbasket of Ukraine. And the fact that they weren't was simply proof that the Jews were in charge of the world, that Jews, one way or another, um, by way of supporting the British blockade, or by way of supporting communism in the Soviet Union, one way or another, they had artificially stopped the Germans from taking what was theirs. So what should happen, says Hitler, is that the racial struggle should recommence. And this has a universal logic, and this has a territorial logic. The universal logic is that in order for the the world to get back to normal, in order for everyone to be struggling the way they should, something has to be done about the Jews. Jews have to be exterminated because the Jews are the ones who fill our heads with these ideas that prevent us from killing our neighbor, um, that that encourage us one way or another to take the Christian form of this idea to 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 love our neighbor, right? I mean, God God thought that Saint Paul, you know, was was the, was just as bad as uh, God, Sorry, Hitler thought that Saint Paul was just as bad as as Trotsky. Right? God and communism come down to the same thing. Saint Paul and Trotsky are the same person. Hitler Hitler says. So one part of it has to be universal. The, the war has to be a war against the Jews. Another part of it is regional. And what Hitler thinks is that once the, once the class struggle begins, the way that the racial struggle begins, the way that Germany should turn is, is eastward, towards Ukraine. And the, there are multiple logics here. One is that um, Hitler is looking at, for a region where expansion is, is plausible. So this is a period of globalization, it's a period of imperial globalization where essentially every square centimeter of the world which is valuable has already been covered by empire. And Hitler is looking for a place where empire can still extend. And all he sees is land expansion because he realizes he can't challenge the British Navy and the the, the direction he sees is towards the east. Um, And this is legitimated from his point of view by America, by the frontier by manifest destiny he sees eastern europe um and the german expansion towards eastern europe as being a second act basically in the expansion of europeans into what he somehow frames as these wild barbaric almost empty territories so just as germans this is now how hitler sees it just as germans and, and scandinavians conquered the indians in canada and the united states so germans can also move eastward and and destroy the Slavs, who on many occasions he compares precisely with with American Indians and predicts that their fate is going to be the same mm. way. The second reason that Ukraine is so plausible in Hitler's historical reasoning has to do with communism. Hitler sees that Hitler presents communism as a, as part of the world Jewish plot. Um, what this means is, 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 well, it's good news and bad news. I mean, it's bad news because the Jews are holding back the natural course of things with these false universalisms like communism. Mm. The Soviet Union is a bulwark essentially against nature, against human nature, against biological nature. It's basically false. That's the bad news from a Nazi perspective. But the good news is that if you can force the Jews to fight, that is if you invade the Soviet Union, then the Soviet Union will collapse, in Hitler's words, like a giant with feet of clay. Or in another passage, it will collapse like a house of cards. Because Jews can only fight thinks Hitler with ideas. The moment they're confronted with force, they will just collapse. And so the good news, and Hitler is very explicit about this, is that the, the Soviet Union is basically there for the taking. All you have to do is attack it, it will collapse, and then Ukraine can move on and become a German colony. And this is the third part of the reasoning. He sees Ukraine basically the same way that many German colonialists saw Africa. And the comparisons and the phraseology goes back and forth. They, were, they use unpleasant language that were, normally would be applied to Africans um, in, with respect to Ukrainians and to Slavs generally as well. The Germans were capable of being racist towards what we Americans would see as white people, um, which is a bit of an intellectual difficulty for us to get around. It has to do with the nature of our own racism, as Mm -hmm. it were. We have to confront our own racism to understand what German racism was like. Anyway, the the third rationale is that this is basically colonial territory. The food and the land is there for the taking. Um, The Ukrainians, says Hitler... you know they will be satisfied if you give them glass beads they'll be satisfied if you put up a loudspeaker in the middle on a pole in the middle of the villages and let them dance around it on Saturdays these are the things that Hitler actually says it just gives you the tonality gives you a sense of what he thinks he's going to do so for these reasons the, the, the historical models of imperialism, like the US, as Hitler sees it, um, the nature of the Soviet Union, and then the colonial character of Ukraine, this means that Lebensraum should be above all Ukraine. And once Ukraine is seized, then Germany is, not only becomes a world power, it has its chance to redeem itself as, as a master race with this mission of conquest and subjugation and starvation.
0: What, so, so you said um, exterminate the Jews what what does that mean for him in 1934
1: or 35 or 36 yeah i mean if by mean you mean what's the technique he doesn't know um, yeah. but i think it's it is you know so so there's this old debate um which i almost which i always complain about when anyone brings it up but now i'm going to bring it up <laughs> between between the the functionalist and the intentionalist and it's very important to get around that debater through it the intentionalists are people who have concentrated, as we've done a little bit so far, on what Hitler actually said, um, or in what some of his lieutenants actually said. And the functionalists are people who claim that the Holocaust emerges rather from the dynamics of of German institutions, as they're forced into new territories, as they're forced into new missions. Um, It's very important to get around that, because obviously it's not one, it's not the other. It's Hitler's ideas, as expressed in Mein Kampf, right in 1924, 25, 26. Those ideas brought about exactly nothing on their own, any more than any other obscure pamphlet published in the 1920s did. The 1920s were a period of many obscure and unbelievably long, semi semi autobiographical pamphlets, um, like like Hitler's. Most of those didn't cause anything, right, in themselves. So the ideas matter, but they don't. They can't bring anything about by themselves. Likewise, the institutions matter, but German institutions without Hitler would have just gone plugging along, no doubt, doing some imperfect things, but they wouldn't have done anything like the Holocaust. So we have to have some way of bringing those two things um, together. So um, the, the 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 claim that I'm trying to make is that for Hitler. We we do need to be very clear that Hitler, for example, at the end of chapter 2 of Mein Kampf, sees a world without Jews, to take along Confino's very fine phrase. Um, He's very clear that he sees that the Jews are destroying the planet, they're destroying life on the planet, they're destroying humanity as such, um, and that they have to be extirpated, they have to be exterminated first, if humanity, if the human species as such, is to survive. How he is going to do that? How that can be brought about, um, he doesn't know. And over the course of the 1920s, the late 1920s and early 1930s, as he becomes a better and better politician, he also becomes better at realizing that he has to push that particular goal into the background. In general, push more of his radical ideas into the background and first get power. So the story of Hitler coming to power, and really even the story of most of the 1930s, has relatively little to do, at least on the surface, with these radical ideas. So I think the kind of argument one has to make is that Hitler really believes all of this. Hitler really does believe the Jews have to be exterminated. But getting to exterminating them is, is um, a long history which involves a good number of steps. The most important of them is Hitler coming to power, for which he has to disguise his ideas. Uh, the, the, then I stress more in my book, so that's really like in a lot of the traditional literature, 1933 is really the story. Once Hitler comes to power, then it all unfolds. I don't think that's quite adequate. Then there's been another move to say, well, between 1933 and 1939 is the story, because that's the period of Gleichaltung, like, That's the period when Hitler makes the German state look like the Nazi state. I think that's a step in the right direction, but I think there's a third period, which is really the crucial period, which it begins in, in, say, 1938 or 39, and which comes to a climax in 1941 when the actual mass killing of the Jews begins. And that is the story of how... Hitler turns the German state into a kind of racial entity whose main objectives are abroad and whose main program involves the destruction of other states so that the racial struggle can commence. And I think that's the place where the ideas and the institutions come together. That's what I was getting at by referring to this old debate between the institutionalists and and, um, and the intentionalists, or the functionalists and the intentionalists. That's where it all comes together. It comes together at the moment, let's say, in Austria in 1938, or Czechoslovakia in 1938 and 39, or Poland in 39. It comes together at the moment when German institutions, having been transformed into racial institutions, actually begin to destroy destroy states. Then the world that's in Hitler's mind has taken some steps towards the world that actually exists. I mean, he begins with his fictional image of racial conflict, and he's able to make the world look more like that image. But what that requires is not just writing a book, not just having a party, not just coming to power, it requires cultivating racial institutions the SS, the concentration camps above all, institutions which are not actually state institutions, which exist alongside the state, which hybridize the state, which can cooperate with the German state, which are not actually German state institutions. This is very important. Himmler, when he's the boss of the SS, is the boss of a non-state institution. And then the purpose of these institutions is to wreak havoc on other states to clear the table, to use the German expression, so that new kinds of political dynamics can emerge. Now, for this, to make this kind of argument, and this goes back to your questions about Holocaust studies and languages and such, to make this kind of argument, you have to then literally go beyond Germany and think about Austria, which no one ever does, seriously. I mean, Austria is, a total, is a completely a footnote in the history of the Holocaust. Think about what it meant for a state to cease to exist from one day to the next in in March of 1938. To think about why it was that so many Austrians in Vienna and elsewhere made these circles around the Jews who were forced to scrub the pavements, right? That had everything to do with the end of the Austrian state. Um, The the, the Jews were scrubbing the word Österreich, the word Austria, off the pavements. It It was a moment of the ritual destruction of the state and the association of the Jews with that state. What it meant for Czechoslovakia to be destroyed, what it meant for Poland and the Polish civil code to be destroyed. But to make these arguments, you have to take, pay, take seriously Czechoslovakia and Poland, um, and then the Soviet Union, uh, the Baltic states, n- not just as the Germans saw them, right? They came to destroy, and they did destroy. But you have to ask the question in a slightly different way. You have to ask, what were the structures that heretofore, that up to that moment, had kept the Jews alive. Right? If, if you ask the question that way, then you can, see, you can see both sides of the question. You see the German ideas and the German institutions encountering a world which they only half see and half know. A, 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 a Jewish world, let's put it that way. Um, a, a city like Vienna where, where Jews have, have done relatively well. A city like Łódź or Warsaw, where, where, in Poland, where Jews are a third of the population. Places which, for better or for worse, sometimes for worse, of course, have sustained Jewish life for centuries. One has to see those places as real places, not just from the point of view of the German destructiveness, and then you can begin to describe the dynamics that actually happen when German power is applied and institutions are, are destroyed. So now I'm trying to close the circle between this question and your earlier question. You get over the institutionalist, you get over the institutionalist, um, over the institutionalist uh, intentionalist thing by going abroad, by, by telling the story as it continues beyond Germany. But to do that, you have to take seriously everybody um, not just the Germans and the German Jews, but everybody who comes into contact with with German power, because some of the dynamics that are set off um, when chaos is spread beyond Germany are not things which the Germans themselves can anticipate.
0: Yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask you about next. Is that that you say a lot about, in particular, with Poland, the double destruction of the Pol- of the Polish state? Um, what what kind of uh, first of all, I guess for for the audience, what do you mean by that? And then what kind of Opportunities or resources does that offer, or more broadly, the kind of way in which uh, states and institutions functioned in that region. What, what does that offer the Germans?
1: Yeah. So let, let me let me let me try to start by introducing this um, aesthetically. I think a lot of the way that we think about the Holocaust is highly aestheticized. We um, we imagine that it all happened somehow in Germany and we imagine, and a lot of the blame to this goes to um, Horkheimer and Adorno um, and, and Arendt actually and, 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 and Baumann in different ways, we imagine the ger- German state institutions almost as aesthetic instruments, that they're very precise, they're very orderly. We use metaphors like gardening, for, for example. We use horticultural or botanical metaphors to describe what happened, but the main thing is that we're imagining Germany as a zone of a kind of modern perfection or, or perfectionism, and that what happened to the Jews was that they were they were described, they were specified, they were categorized, they were set out from the rest of the population, and then they were destroyed. That never happened. That that never happened. That is not that history of the Holocaust never, in fact, happened. The Jews were, in, in, of course, in Germany, discriminated against, treated as second-class citizens. Um, this encouraged them to immigrate, um, uh, encouraged is probably the wrong word. They were coerced into immigrating. They lost their rights. It was, it, was, it was horrible. But this is not how the Holocaust happened. One has to abandon this image of a kind of perfect, self-perfect, self-perfecting German state which I think we find intoxicating because it's aesthetically so pleasing, and accept that, in fact, what happened, and this is much messier and it requires a much broader view, is that what Germany did was go out, go beyond itself with with terrifying intent and destroy a lot of institutions which were imperfect and maybe for us not so interesting, but nevertheless functional in one way or another. And in one way or another is very important. So if you look at the palette you know, if you look at the spectrum of Jewish life in, 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 in Europe in, in, 19, in 1938, say, you have one form of Jewish life in Vienna. You have another form of Jewish life in Warsaw. You have another form of Jewish life in, in Riga. You have another form of Jewish life in Minsk, let's say, or in Kiev. But these are all place. So the political systems are pretty different. But these are all places where Jews live in large numbers, right? And the Soviet system has one kind of problem or weakness or syndrome, the Polish system likewise, the Austrian system likewise, they're all imperfect, and one can criticize them from various points of view. But what, what one has to accept is that these are states in which Jews live, and in many cases flourished, uh, or at least some Jews flourished, in, in large numbers on territories where Jews had been living, you know, in the case of Poland and the Soviet Union, the Baltic states, for half a millennium, right? So these are imperfect institutions. they we don't like. We don't love them the way that we love Germany. The story of like, German culture and Germany's rise and fall is, is intoxicating. Um, we love that narrative. The idea of a rise and a fall, and how could the Germans have done it? Right? The, how could the people of you know people of, who produce such great classical music? How could they have done this? We love that narrative, and it makes no sense whatsoever because that's not how it happened. There wasn't a perfection. There wasn't a perfect German state. There was a racializing German state which turned its racial energy abroad and destroyed other institutions, thereby clearing the way for a process of destruction which was impossible inside Germany and which never happened inside Germany. Even the German Jews who were killed were killed um, after they were set beyond what had been the territory of pre-war Germany into precisely places like, I already mentioned, like Riga or Minsk, or Wuj, places where Jews had lived for a very long time, but which German power turned into zones of of anarchy, and, and therefore of destruction. So you asked specifically about Poland, but I, I just wanted to lead up to it, because what we need to do is we have to be interested in Poland, not just as a place where okay, the Germans come, and then we, don't, we haven't thought about it until 1939. We have to think about it before 1939. The Soviet Union, we have to think about it before 1941, because we want to ask what chaos means. You have to ask, what is the thing which is being broken? What are, what are the fragments, right? I mean, just like if you want to ask what, what a hurricane does to New Orleans, you have to have some notion of New Orleans. If you want to ask what you know, a, a war is going to do Iraq, you have to have some notion of Iraq before you start the war. You know, those are are slightly trivial or or, or examples, but just to get the basic point across. So if with Poland, okay, you have a state in which you have the largest, um, you have one of the largest Jewish populations in the world. You have um, very large populations of Jews in the cities. You have um, an authoritarian clique with um, whose announced intention is to get most of the Jews out of the country. You have a large political party, the National Democrats, who are not in power but um, whose whose doctrine is basically anti-Semitic. But you also have a civil society, you have a rule of law state, um, you have property rights, and you have you have Jews basically, you know, one way or another. M- many of them Orthodox, um, some of them secular, going about their daily life, not expecting that that life and this is important is going to come to an end any time very very soon. It's very easy to sort of project an, a sense of crisis in the late 1930s, but that is mostly a, a, a projection when Germany comes into Poland and destroys the Polish state. And this is not a, you know, um, this is not a metaphor. They, they say the Polish state does not exist. Their legal verdict is that the Polish state has never existed and that therefore what they're doing is, is invading, not even invading, they're just arriving in an essentially uninhabited kind of colonial territory. That's their legal doctrine. Um, the, the the general government was originally called the general government of occupied poland but they got rid of of occupied poland because they you know their point was that there never had been a poland to occupy so from their point of view what they were doing was not an occupation because there was no thing to occupy there was just this as it were wild territory begging for begging for control um so if you if you see it that way right that's the German perspective, but from the banal, everyday perspective of Poles and Jews and others on these territories, getting rid of the Polish state means getting rid of the Polish civil code. It means getting rid of property rights, right? Ghettoization is not just an ethnic activity, it's also a legal activity. It only happens because you, you, you decide that Jews have no property rights, or so for that matter, nobody in Poland has property rights. And therefore, everything is up for grabs. That's part of ghettoization. That's part of the dynamic of ghettoization. And ghettoization is one of the things, as we all know, which is going to make the Holocaust possible. I just choose it as, as an example. Meanwhile, um, the other half of Poland is being invaded by the Soviet Union. And this is a part of the story which gets completely left out of the history of the Holocaust. I mean, you can look at all of the classic history of the Holocaust, long as many of them are. And they, they may not even mention the molotov ribbentrop Pact or if they do, which just very briefly as an aside. And here, I think, is where we really go wrong, or one of the places we really go wrong. Because if you you know, if you, if one's willing to accept that what the Germans were after is state destruction, the Soviets are, so to speak, objectively, if not subjectively, a partner in all this, because they are much better at the, than the Germans at destroying states. It's part of their modus operandi. Um, and they destroy Estonia, they destroy Latvia, they destroy Lithuania, and they destroy their part of Poland. Again, not in any metaphorical sense. They also declare that in the Baltic states. The, these, these, these civil codes go away. Cooperation with the what had been legitimate authorities is declared to be a crime, right? So if you're an Estonian, for example, civil servant, you can be prosecuted for having been an Estonian civil servant because that was a, you know, that's now a free, that's a crime. Um, property rights also go away on the Soviet side completely. Um, as a result, although there's no specific intent to persecute Jews, As a result, Jews lose many of their connections on the Soviet side before the Germans even arrive. And then the case I'm trying to make is that, or one of the cases I'm trying to make, is that when Germany encounters the Soviet Union in 1941, here we have double state destruction. And for me, this is so essential and so central to the whole story um, that one can almost not insist upon it enough. The, the, The Germans begin to kill Jews in large numbers in the summer of 1941. The event that we consider the Holocaust, that is the mass killing, but also the clear decision or intent to murder all Jews, that's emerging at the end of 1941 or early 1942 as a direct result of the invasion of the Soviet Union and the experiences on the territories of the invaded Soviet Union. But what are those territories? The, the, the The German invasion begins on the territories that the Soviet Union has just invaded. The Germans begin by invading eastern Poland, by invading the Baltic states, by invading the places that the Soviet Union has just itself invaded and occupied in 1939 to 1940. Which means that you have have an unprecedented situation, which I think has to be described um, in as detailed and as analytical way as we can, where what the Germans are doing is encountering societies which have just been politically wrecked which have just been socially decapitated. Um, and this creates opportunities for the Germans, which they themselves only half understand, but which are very much real. And I'll just, uh, I will just and I spend about the middle third of the book trying to describe these yeah. local politics, but I'll just give one example because I think it gets to the heart of it, which is double occupation. Um, sorry, which is double collaboration. A fair number, I can't quite say most, but although I suspect that it is in the Baltic case, but a fair number, let's say a substantial number, of the people who, of the local people who who take part in killing Jews for the Germans, have just left Soviet organs of power in one way or another. And why am I saying this? Am I saying this because I really don't like the Soviet Union, or because <laughs> I'm trying to say that communism and Nazism are the same thing? Not at all. Um, it's it's a the it's a local political dynamic. It's the moment where um, Hitler's grand ideas actually, for the first time, really touch earth. Um, and that's the fatal thing. Hitler's ideas are, are, are actually being realized because states have been swept away. A racial institutions, the Einsatzgruppen, are coming in. And the particular idea of, Hitler that, of Hitler's, which is, of course, wrong, this is important, it's wrong, but it's powerful, that Jews are communists and communists are Jews, that idea finally can actually matter. Because if you say that, when you arrive in a territory which the Soviets have just... Uh, conquered. What are you doing? You're providing an alibi for the whole population. I mean, just let's imagine for a minute that you're an Estonian or Latvian or Lithuanian or a Pole in Eastern Poland. The Soviets have come in and wiped out your state. They've destroyed your intelligentsia. And because they're very good at this sort of thing, they've brought much of the society into their own system, right? They're much better at that than the Germans. And then the Germans arrive and they say, well, look, communists are Jews and Jews are communists. That is a beautiful escape route for the vast majority of the population, because all of a sudden, psychologically, they can purge themselves of the shame of having lost their state, because of course it was a Jewish international plot, how could they resist it? They can purge themselves of their own responsibility for having collaborated with the Soviet state, as almost everybody did in one way or another. And there's a, there's a present victim who can be targeted upon whom all of this responsibility can be placed. And when those people are killed, that responsibility goes away. And so you get this political dynamic, which the Germans themselves only half understand, right? They don't really, many of them sincerely believe that Jews are communists and communists are Jews. They don't really understand how the Soviet system works, of course. And so there's a kind of misunderstanding which allows this political dynamic of, of, of double collaboration. Because if the Germans had realized that they were recruiting so many people who'd worked for the Soviets, they would have perhaps given that a second thought, but they didn't really understand that. So this is an example, I mean, of, of a number of things, but it's an example of, of the politics of this double state destruction. Destroying the state was bad enough, right? It allowed things to happen in Austria in 1938 that were impossible in Germany. It allowed things to happen in Czechoslovakia that were impossible in Germany. It allowed things to happen in Poland that were, impos- that were impossible in Germany. But none of those things actually amounted to mass killing. Mass killing is only possible at the moment, at least, you know, in the history, as we're telling it, of the Holocaust, mass killing is only possible at the moment when the German state begins to destroy a Soviet state, which itself had just destroyed other states one or two years before.
0: So, and and we're running a little bit short on time, Um, and and there's, as you say, you you deal with this very explicitly and very thoughtfully in much of the book, and I I encourage the, the audience to go out and read it for themselves. Oh, but, but what is the Auschwitz paradox that you talk about?
1: So, um, w- again, let me let me start with a kind of aesthetic image because I'm I'm kind of I'm, I'm struggling against these sort of crystallized pictures that we have of how the Holocaust happened because all of these crystallized pictures they're not just intellectual simplifications they are ways that we have of locating aesthetically the Holocaust at a at a distance from ourselves and then locating it at a distance from ourselves we're also making it implausible as history so we imagine Auschwitz as a kind of black hole we imagine it as a kind of non place we use metaphors like factory or an industry um, we speak of machines um, i think you know this this is a this is a this is a big m- mistake Auschwitz is possible at the end of a whole series of causation which which begins with the mass killing um, by shooting, which we just started to talk about on the Eastern Front, which proceeds through other death facilities and which culminates in Auschwitz in 1943, and 1944. But um, what we see, if we follow that history carefully, is that Jews um, are killed in the territories where Germany destroys the state. I mean, just as an overwhelming statistical reality, in places where Germany is able to destroy the state prior. Um, to undertaking the final solution, Jews die at a rate of around 95%. If Germany did not destroy the state before the final solution as mass murder commences in late 1941, early 1942, Jews have roughly a one in two chance of surviving. So, in places like France um, or Belgium, let's say, uh, Italy, every case is a little bit different. um, And I tried to describe the differences in the book, but in general, if if the state was not destroyed, and it doesn't matter that much, actually, if it's occupied or or whether it's a German ally or whether it's Germany itself, what really matters is whether the state was destroyed or not. If you're a Jew in Germany itself, your chances of surviving are roughly one in two, which is uh, average for everywhere else. It's not more dangerous to be a German Jew than than it is to be in other places. And that might seem paradoxically, but I'm just taking a little step towards the general paradox. Here's the general paradox. We are right. In thinking that there was a that there was an intention on the part of Hitler and the Nazi leadership to exterminate, to kill all the Jews under German power, and Auschwitz was indeed the place where Jews were gathered from all over Europe, and that's what's special about it. Um, in 1942, 43, 44, the Germans attempted and sometimes succeeded in sending Jews from all around Europe into Auschwitz. The paradox is that um, Auschwitz is universal. as as an expression of the intent to destroy all Jews. But when it comes to the practice of destroying all Jews, it's not at all. Most of the Jews who were supposed to be sent to Auschwitz were not, in fact, sent to Auschwitz. Precisely because Auschwitz was the site to which Jews who were still citizens of other states, allied states, occupied states, precisely for that reason, it was relatively more difficult to get them killed than it was to get Jews in in stateless regions killed. In the book, I run through this case-by-case, country-by-country, but the basic idea is perhaps illustrated most efficiently on the example of, of France. In the French Holocaust, the largest victim group was not the French Jews. In the French Holocaust, the largest victim group were Polish Jews for the very simple reason that there was no state to protect them. And the, 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 the level of convenient agreement between Berlin and Vichy could be precisely that the Jews who were not in France, who are not French citizens, should be the ones who are killed. If we begin the history of the Holocaust in France with the sentence, more Polish Jews are killed in the French Holocaust than French Jews we have a chance of understanding this 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 general dynamic. another efficient way to try kind to of get this across is to declare is to compare a case like Estonia with the case um, like with a case like um, that of, uh, of of let's say Denmark where in both cases you have small groups of Jews in both cases the Germans declare the countries to be free of Jews but in the case of Estonia 99% die and in the case of Denmark 99% live. The explanation has nothing to do with levels of anti-Semitism. It has everything to do with the nature of the occupation. In Estonia, you have the harshest variant of double occupation, as we've discussed. In Denmark, you have um, a relatively gentle conventional occupation, which means that even though the German policy, as far as the Jews, was identical in both cases, they are simply not able to do things in Denmark that that, that, that they were able to direct or control or execute in, in Estonia. And again, if we start a history of the whole Holocaust by saying 99% of the Jews in Denmark survive and 99% of the Jews in Estonia die, I think then we're asking one of the right questions because that leads us to, to accept that even though Hitler's intentions might be important, even though Germany might have had an empire that spanned the continent, we need to ask about internal differences, and the major internal difference is the degree of state destruction. That's the one thing which has truly, I think, clear, predictive, and explanatory power.
0: And, and you make the point that, that when you look at rescuers, one of, the ways in, one of the ways to understand how some rescuers could be more effective than others is to, to, to try and understand the kinds of institutions they functioned within and how similar those were to states.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, here, since I've already made a bad habit of this, let me, let me start with what I take (laughs) to be our, you know, our our image of how this works. We, Uh we really prize, um, the lone rescuer, whether it's in a film about the Holocaust or not. Um, it, it, it's almost the same thing. Um, a successful Hollywood film about the Holocaust is going to have a lone rescuer, as, as the hero, right? Um, whether that's Bielski or, you know, whether that's Schindler, um, there is going to be someone who rises up, you know, despite circumstances and does something exceptional, right? A hero almost in the, you know, in the, in the classical sense of the word, someone who transcends circumstances. Now, if we, if we want to get this right, um, we have to, both as history and I think as, you know, as policy for the future, what we have to accept is that such people existed, but they were very, they were very, very few. Um, and this is something, the last third of the book, as you know, is devoted to this, It's devoted to rescue, um, largely on the basis of, of Yiddish and Russian and, and Polish sources, because I'm concerned with the zone of statelessness where things were at their worst. And what you see is that, yes, there were such people who one could call virtuous, um, who went for, for, for whom one could use the word hero if one wants, people who despite, literally despite everything, were able to rescue Jews. But there weren't that many of them. And their very situation is one in which a Holocaust is going on around them. They can stop it at the level of one person or two people, or in some exceptional cases, a couple of dozen people. But they're not stopping the Holocaust as such. And this is the thing which we have to accept. Individual rescuers, although they, can be, they should be remembered, and they're not remembered well enough, and they should be emulated insofar as we can, um, they, cannot be the, they cannot provide any sort of redemption for us, um, not least because we wouldn't, most of us would have no chance of emulating them, but also because there isn't a happy ending to, to the Holocaust. There, there cannot be a happy ending to the Holocaust. This, this is not a, a historical event which any one person can redeem. What we can do is we can learn lessons around these people, We can learn the moral lesson from them, but also the lesson around them, which is, as you say, that the better the structural conditions were, the more likely people were to be able to rescue. Um, The more that they could count on, for example, the law, the more likely they were to be able to rescue. In a stateless zone, for example, like the Western Soviet Union or Poland under occupation, it it was a crime, one which was sometimes punished by death. But the most important thing for me is that it was a crime to, to rescue a Jew. When, when Anne Frank was rescued, um, well, she wasn't rescued, but when she was helped in the Netherlands, it was not a crime to help her. Right? This is this is a very important elementary distinction. There still was a Dutch state, right? When when the when the Danes in 1943 in this famous rescue, where um, where the Danish story works is that Danish Jews are gathered onto this informal um, flotilla of boats and shipped off to Sweden in 1943. The Danes were not doing anything illegal. <laughs> They were citizens of the Danish state who chose to help their Jewish neighbors, who were also citizens of the Danish state. They were not committing any crime. This is really elemental. People are much more likely to behave well if the law is on their side, or at least the law is not specifically directed against them. And then you reach the top of this logic, um, and we reach a point which you know, we know we find uninteresting because we want the lone wolf. You know, we want we want the, the lone figure. But the most effective rescuers were people who wore ties the most effective rescuers were diplomats for the basic reason that a diplomat was himself legally almost invulnerable, although there were some cases like Raul Wallenberg, tragically, in which that was not true. But in general, a diplomat is himself um, legally invulnerable, and the diplomat has the almost magical capacity to hand out state recognition. So Wallenberg, to start from his example, I mean, that, that man saved... A huge number of Jews, right? Perhaps more than anyone else. Um, in you know, well around around ten thousand, maybe a bit more, because he was handing out pieces of paper which extended Swedish state recognition to individuals. Or Sugihara, um, the Japanese consul general, who was able um, in Kaunas um, to hand out to save um, a similar order, well into the thousands number of Jews by giving them transport papers. And there are other examples of of, of Spanish and Portuguese and American diplomats who did similar things. A Chinese diplomat in Vienna. But the, the basic argument, the point is that they could do this because they represented states, right? And we don't like it, but it's not, it's not that appealing to us, and probably nobody's ever going to make a movie about these people because, you know, who likes diplomats? But, but, well, I mean, no, I mean, it's a serious point, right? Like a person, yeah. it's almost as though the moment someone becomes a civil servant, right, from our point of view, a bureaucrat, right, they have to be the bad guy. But if you want the good guys who actually saved more than 10 or more than 100 Jews, you're pretty much looking at a list which is almost exclusively diplomats, which goes to my point of the state being this instrument, even an imperfect state, right? I mean, the U.S., Spain, Portugal, it's not that they were perfect states. Japan, that's not the point at all. The point is that they functioned in the sense that they could extend recognition to other people if if they chose to to do so. So
0: there's much more in this book as history, isn't there? and the Holocaust is history, but but the subtitle also includes and warning. And you've touched on this uh, places in the interview, but but what do you mean the Holocaust is warning?
1: Well, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a very simple point, but all, all history is contemporary, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all history is contemporary in the dual sense that everything which ever happened has some influence on what happens now, and, and, and also in the sense that things which happened, especially in the recent past, can show patterns, can reveal tendencies and, and possibilities for for the present. Um, my, my own sense is that the world that we live in is not, in fact, a postmodern one. Um, I don't really believe that the, that modern modernity has come to an end. I think at least that the 1930s are close enough to us that they can be instructive mm-hmm. and that a lot of the effort, <clears throat> a lot of our mental effort, psychological effort, with respect to the Holocaust has gone towards not understanding it has gone towards pretending to understand it. Has gone towards memorializing it without understanding it in such a way as to make you know never again a kind of incantation, as opposed to, as opposed to a policy prescription. I mean, as I see it, a lot of the basic things which the history tells us are automatically warnings, right? So I mean, I, I don't. I haven't had time. I mean, it's been a great conversation. But I, of course, I can't persuade anyone of the statelessness right. argument in this format. But let's assume that. You know, we're persuaded that state destruction is a bad thing. That has automatic implications for policy. Right? I mean it would mean that you would become more alarmed about, for example, the Russians announcing in early 2014 that Ukraine is not a real state. Or if you're two thousand if it's two thousand two and you're considering whether the United States should invade Iraq, um, you might, if you understand the Holocaust the way, as I think it happened, right, you would be less likely to think, oh, yes, if we if we get rid of a bad dictator, good things will happen, and you'd be more likely to say, hmm, um, if we destroy a state, do we have something to to put in its place? Because the historical record actually shows us that state destruction is a risky, dangerous thing. And, I mean, uh, when one looks at the Middle East today, um, you know, I not, not the point is not to, you know, to, to say that, you know, Bush and Cheney were uniquely awful people or Americans are uniquely awful imperialists or whatever. The point is to say that if we had considered the, the, the invasion of Iraq in 2001 and 2002, if that discussion had been about the Holocaust as it actually happened, as opposed to our Hollywood fantasy of the Holocaust, we might have drawn different conclusions because in our Hollywood fantasy, all you have to do is go in and take out the bad guy. Right. And then flowers start to spring from the earth and, and all is, all is, all is sweetness. Right. And, 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 it's, it's not just, I mean, I'm thinking of this perhaps too jokingly, but it's a serious thing. If you think the Holocaust was, is a typical crime caused by a bad authoritarian regime, then you can think, well, let's get rid of that regime. And that's what we thought. And that's what we did. And we are, we are still paying the consequences. Um, but if you think the Holocaust happened because an unusual racial state destroyed other states, then the lessons for whether you destroy an authoritarian regime are quite different, right? You might think twice. You might think, hmm, well, if the Holocaust was partly about destroying states, we should, make, we should be really showing what we're doing before we destroy a state. So it, the, the, the policy prescriptions are, as it were, automatic. Um, you know, if you think, for example, you know, as, I, as I've tried to argue in our conversation, if you think that Hitler was primarily an ecological thinker, that his starting point was that there are finite resources in the world, and that it was right, therefore, to be afraid, and it was right, therefore, to compete, and that there are no rules, uh, it, it, there, there are no rules which should govern or hinder or limit um, our, our fear and our desire. If you think that then it I think it's fairly it's it's all it's fairly obvious what that implies for a world of climate change, where other not just peoples, but at some point in the not too distant future, other great powers may have concerns which are not so different from German concerns with food in the nineteen twenties and, and the nineteen thirties, which isn't to say that it will all, you know, replay itself automatically, but just that but rather to say that we have suppressed the thing about the, the things about the Holocaust, which we don't want to hear for our own reasons. And those might be the very things which are most useful as we try to head off problems in, in the future. You know, the statelessness part and the ecological part are the parts that we've suppressed for, for, for better or worse reasons. And they may be the things which are most useful for us. Or to put it in a slightly more polemical way, when you define the Holocaust in terms of memory, um, you are making it useless for the future. Um, because you were by definition, you're saying, if you say, well, um, the Holocaust is unique, you know, to use a phrase, which I get asked about all the time, what does unique mean? It means it can't happen again. And that generates a tremendous sense of false comfort at all, at all levels. Of course, the Holocaust, just like the Holocaust won't happen again. But since the Holocaust, we've had, we've had mass killings all around the world and you know, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's Committee on Conscience has, has defined, and this is unusual, it's defined, what ISIS is doing to the Yazidi right now as genocide, and I think they're absolutely right. Um, we, 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 can, we can learn things from the Holocaust which help us to see, to understand similar crimes that have happened, um, to understand the ones that are unfolding, and perhaps to make future ones less likely. And for that, you know, we need more than a sense of memory. Um, we need a sense. We need. We need memory to accept the way things actually happened, as opposed to putting them into the into the commemorative boxes, which are most convenient for us at, at our own moment in in history. There is a kind of war here. I mean, war is too strong, but there's a tension here, a struggle between the Holocaust as it is convenient to remember it, right? Because the way that it's always the, the, the memory is always going to be. We tend to remember things in a way which is easiest for ourselves, which doesn't involve challenges to ourselves, which involves instead pushing responsibility and causality away um, and embracing our own good intentions, Um, as as opposed to interpretation, which is always painful, which is always controversial, because interpretation involves seeing the resemblances among human beings and the capacities within human beings, which might be similar or more similar than is comfortable. In this book, I'm obviously pushing very hard... um, Against the memorial concept of the Holocaust, I believe obviously it should be remembered and I, you know, and I support and I work with museums and, 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 and I support and work with Holocaust, Holocaust educators. I believe that it should be remembered, but the memory has to work together with a, a, an understanding of the event. Which makes it human um and which makes it accessible and which therefore makes it, 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 it useful as as policy because i'm afraid we we can't really handle the twenty first century by saying that we've already understood the twentieth <laughs> yeah. that's just that's not that's not going to work
0: well it's been a fascinating discussion uh, and and particularly i, I appreciate you struggling through the cold I know you have um, and I know the listeners appreciate it as well I always finished with a couple. Um, brief questions. Um, one is to give you a chance to um, suggest a book or a movie or or something on the subject, maybe of the Holocaust or or mass violence or whatever, something that was meaningful to you that that the audience should go read this weekend.
1: Okay, so since I'm already in this kind of high pedantic mode, I'm gonna I'm gonna start by um <laughs> I'm gonna start by just by recapitulating something which i just said which is that there is a there's a struggle between narrative and understanding yeah and the 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 the, even the memoirs which we find difficult or touching or heart-wrenching they very often smooth things out to understand the holocaust i mean one has to understand um not just experiences of survivors, but also one has to understand the situations which were artificially generated um, and one has to understand the perpetrators and precisely perpetrators are not that good at writing memoirs right <laughs> it 's hard to think of uh, you know it 's hard to think of memoir perpetrators which, yeah. which we 've cherished down down the ages. Um, so I want to say that as a kind of as, as as a kind of preface, I'm going to give you some examples of things that I think are, are are useful or interesting. But I, I just I want to caution us as as thinking of the Holocaust as any kind of closed book, where there's a beginning, there's an end, um, you know, where there's some kind of redemption at at the at the end of it. We we should not be ever feeling that. I I, I don't think. I think the lesson of the Holocaust is the opposite. That it's it's not legitimate ever to feel that. And that said, I mean, there are there are works of art and works of fiction, which I, I think are convey something true. Um, one of them, one of, a book which is historically uh, almost unbelievably accurate, um, a work of fiction is is the Kindly Ones by, by Jonathan Littell um, hmm. from 2006. A, a very, very long um, history of, of, of the war on the Eastern Front from the point of view of a German Officer, um, contentious in many ways, uh, but what many of the reviews I think overlooked is just how unbelievably historically accurate it, it, it was, and and thanks to that, one has a sense of what some what I think a very decent sense um, of how some German perpetrators might have experienced their 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 crimes. He takes that up mm-hmm. un- unflinchingly, um, then. And as as, as 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 memoirs go, as sort of as perpetrator memoirs go, this one is not of the Holocaust, but it's it's very good. It has to do with the Ukrainian-Polish ethnic cleansing in Volynia in 1943 in Western Ukraine. There's a book called Nine Lives um, by Waldemar Loebnick, which um, it does an unusually good job at, at accepting at, at of, of of allowing someone who took part in mass killing, who was both a victim and a perpetrator in different ways, um, to to explain himself and the set of and the set of circumstances. Um as 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 far as uh, as far as films go, I think that the, the best the best Holocaust film which is sort of viewable, I mean one wouldn't want to contest the historical significance of 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 Shoah, right, by Lanzmann. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's not a movie that you can just sit down and watch. <laughs> right? If one wants to watch a kind of contemporary, extremely well made um but historically and and sociologically wise, movie about the Holocaust, um, Agnieszka Holland's *In Darkness* from maybe three years ago, four years ago, is um, is I think um, a, a good a good thing to 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 rent and 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 watch this this weekend. She it's not only extremely well done, um, it, and of course it is a movie about rescue because they're always about they're always about rescue. Yeah. I mean, but it's a movie about rescue in which you see some of the sociological. Difficulties. I'm just going to mention one little scene because it, it 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 draws out the kind of everyday textured reality which we would prefer to overlook. Um, you, you have this, you have a pole who's, who's this is in Lviv, the city which is now called Lviv in Poland. It was Lviv in in, in Austria, it was Lemberg, now it's Western mm-hmm. Ukraine. Um, you have a pole and his wife who are helping a group of Jews who have escaped in into the sewers. And if you're going to help someone you know, anyone, a group, you have to get them food. And you have to get them food regularly, you know, and this is hard. And there's a scene where the the pole is going to a woman at the, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a shop to buy groceries, and he's buying more groceries than he really needs because, of course, the woman at the shop knows that it's just him and his wife, and you know, why do they need so much food? And so she just gives him the smallest of looks. I mean, I think maybe she just arches an eyebrow. And at that moment, he knows he's not safe. Right. And the film doesn't say anything about it. No words are exchanged. But the next time you see him buying food, he's buying it somewhere else. Right. Huh. And and so that it's that kind of little thing which conveys um, the difficulty and therefore the reality of an attempted rescue um, and which therefore brings us a step closer to the social reality of. Of 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 the killing and things like that are done very artfully in this in this film. So that's so that's in darkness is one that I would recommend.
0: Well, my weekend is now full. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> and so the last question, then, is a simple one: What are you working on now?
1: Um, well, I'm mostly still, you know, I'm surrounded by the Fop Sam and Jet Sam of, of 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 this
0: <laughs> enterprise still.
1: Um, but I, I I'm going to write a little book about. A little book collecting some reflections um, about uh, the significance of the Russian war in Ukraine, the contemporary mm-hmm. Russian war in Ukraine, um, trying to present just why I believe that's a turning point in in the history of of Europe and and the West. And then uh, and then in terms of my historical work, I'm I'm going to I'm, I'm meaning to return to the subject of which the the Red Prince was um, meant to be a chapter, um, a book called Brotherlands. Which is it, which I've been working on actually my whole career. It's a study <laughs> of elite families where brothers and sisters choose different national identities and then become important in different national movements and then as it were disappear into those national historiographies and those national myths, um, you know never to be reunited <laughs> with their family members. And what I'm trying to do is to write a history of of the politics of the nation, which accepts that even though national politics as such might have been inevitable at a certain moment, The the choice of the nation um, was not, at least not at first, and that the people who chose to build nations um, were accepting perhaps this overwhelming historical reality of of mass politics, and that mass politics were going to be national, but still had, at least for a time, um, room for maneuver about which movement they would attach themselves to. So I want to write family histories, which get us down to the reasons why people actually make the choices that, that they do. But I'm also after the question, which I think is a real question, of why we actually have the nations that we have, as opposed to some other set of nations.
0: Well, it sounds like a fabulous book, um, and uh, as this one was. And I just want to say again, as we conclude, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time.
1: Thanks, Kelly. I was really glad to do it.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Timothy Snyder, author of Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I interview Josh Zimmerman about his book, The Polish Underground and the Jews. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.